our New Testament lesson is from James 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought, forth, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, and um, I want to wish a happy Mother's Day to any mothers in the sanctuary or any mothers that are streaming online. And, and I did appreciate Michael's prayer. Uh, motherhood is a good gift of, of God's creation, but um, we know that, that it can also be a, a painful thing. Um, and it is our prayer that um, it has been, in, in some way, shape, or form, a good gift of, of God's creation in your own life. With appreciation for, for God and for his good gifts for us, um, let us come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for, for your word and the gift that it is to us. And I pray each word that follows would be faithful to your intent for this passage that you have given to us and that you powerfully in your spirit um, would apply it to our hearts, uh, to our hands, and to our heads. And we ask this, Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is the second sermon in a series that we're doing on the, the book of James, and it's a series entitled The Flourishing Community. And last week, if you remember, we spent time talking about three key, three foundational biblical realities. This was flourishing wisdom in the gospel. And in so doing, we were in a sense tealing the soil um, that the fruit of community grows from. And this sermon will actually take a similar course. I, I do promise that next week James is going to take us right in to matters of community. And we're going to stay there for the duration of the, ser the series. But before James does that, he also wants to get right another foundational biblical reality. And this is the reality of love, of those deep desires that we have that guide our thoughts and that also guide our actions. 
And James is telling us that if we are going to flourish together, we absolutely have to get love right and let it bind us together as God means love to do. And towards that end, James specifically guides us through three kinds of love. He takes us through the love of God. He takes us through the love of creation. And finally, he takes us to the love of Christ. And I want to look at each of those in turn, starting with the love of God. Look with me at James 1.12. James begins this passage by writing the following. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, if, if you remember, actually, the, the Old Testament reading for, for last week was, was Psalm 1, and we kept it as Psalm 1 again today. And this is very important because in this passage, James begins his introduction with an allusion to Psalm 1. He says, blessed is the man. And this is very important because if you look at the the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, James here takes the exact wording and the exact order of the Greek version of Psalm 1. He's trying to call to mind that particular image. He wants us to think about that flourishing tree of Psalm 1 that's brought to full maturity. Recall that the flourishing tree of Psalm 1 is like the person who delights in the law of the Lord. This is the person who delights in the good and the gracious purposes of God, which is to say it's the person who delights in God himself. For that person, God is the ultimate object of of delight, of desire, of love. And James talks about the same kind of people. He speaks in this verse of those who love him, those who love God. So whereas the psalmist tells us, blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord, James tells us, blessed is the person who loves God. And to be sure, these just are the same people. But James also makes an interesting connection here. He draws a connection between the trials that we face and the love of God that we have. And it's important that we work out this connection. It's important that we understand what James is getting at here. And towards that end, C.S. Lewis is particularly helpful. He talks about an important truth of the Christian life. He says that there has to be a natural connection between the reward that is received and the way that we pursue that particular reward. Uh, Lewis himself offers the example of a battle. And he says, a general who goes to battle seeks the natural reward of a victory. Lewis says, victory just is the proper reward for battle. However, He says the general might actually seek something else most primarily. Let's say the general who goes to battle actually seeks to rise up through military ranks. Lewis says if that's the person's main motivation, then in some way, shape, or form, that person is a mercenary. And Lewis is calling us to make sure that we, as Christians, 
are not living mercenary lives. Lewis says the following, Those who have attained everlasting life in the vision of God doubtless know very well that it is no mere bribe, but the very consummation of their earthly discipleship. The very consummation of their earthly discipleship. And it's interesting because if you remember our sermon from last week, we looked at James's notion of, of perfection. And we quoted a commentator who said the following. He said, the, oh, sorry, what that perfection is, is the consummating conclusion of a dynamic process, the goal of which manifests the realization of its meaning and intentions. So Lewis here is saying that all of our Christian life should culminate in, quote, the consummation of our early or earthly discipleship. Whereas the commentator on James 1 speaks of the consummating conclusion of a dynamic process. And this dynamic process just is our life. Lewis is saying that the reward that God gives us at the end of our life must be the natural culmination of everything that we do in our life. It must naturally flow from each and every step we take in life. If, we, if, if this natural reward is our destination, then it only makes sense that each step along that path that takes us to the destination would lead us there. So we have to step back and ask, does each and every moment in movement of our Christian life take us closer to the natural reward? Consider the example of, of climbing a mountain. When you're climbing a mountain, each step you take does give you a better view of the surrounding scenery. And when you get to the very top of the mountain, you have the very best view of all. And that view at the top of the mountain just is the natural reward of climbing the mountain. There's a natural connection. So, in the same way, we have to ask ourselves, are we seeking a natural reward that just is the consummating conclusion of our life? Does each step we're taking in the Christian life actually enable to better see, to better know, and to better view, to better enjoy some object of adoration? Just like every step out, uh, sorry, up the mountain allows us to better see and enjoy that natural view. Well, if we're going to answer that question, the first thing we have to nail down is what exactly is that reward? What is this crown of life of which James speaks? Well, recall that James refers to these persons most basically as those who love God. These are persons who love God. God. This just is their defining feature. And if that's the case, what greater reward for them than could there be than God himself? Those who love God most fully long for God. And James is telling them that what they long for, namely God himself, they will receive. If we think of the, uh, the beginning of our own Westminster Shorter Catechism, we confront the question, what is the chief end of humanity? The answer of which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we have to ask ourselves, is every moment of our life in some way, shape, or form tending toward that end, 
tending toward that telos, tending toward that consummating conclusion. And Lewis knows that this is not easy, that this can be a difficult process. In fact, he, he writes the following, quote, The joys of heaven are for most of us in our present condition an acquired taste, and certain ways of life may render that taste impossible of acquisition, end quote. Now, we've all had the experience of acquired taste, something that at first we didn't like, but then we really grew to, to love. I think the, the quintessential example, at least in American society, is, is coffee. I'm sure most of you can remember the, the first time you tried coffee as a, as a kid. You saw your parents drinking it. They seemed to, to love it. So, yeah, you're going to give it a try as, as well. But you, you take that first sip, and it's very, very bitter. You, you, you spit it out, and you can't understand why anyone in the world would drink this, let alone enjoying drinking it. And then usually later in life, maybe it's college, maybe it's at some other point, but you find yourself having to do a lot of work. Maybe it's study, maybe it's another kind of work. You're staying up late, and you need caffeine in order to stay up late. So you start drinking coffee, um, and at first it's strictly functional. But then something interesting starts to happen. You actually begin to enjoy the taste of coffee. What used to be a source of disgust actually becomes a source of delight, wherein when you wake up in the morning, you can't wait to have that first cup of, of coffee. And Lewis is saying something interesting. He's saying that the Christian life is not unlike that. That just as we have to grow into our taste for coffee, so too do we have to grow in our taste for God. And this brings us to what James has to say about trials. Because properly used, trials are things that grow our desire, that grow our delight, that grow our love for God. Trials properly processed help us to acquire a taste for God. When we look back at the past year of, of the pandemic, I mean, it's been full of, of trials. It's been a very, very hard year for everyone. One thing that the pandemic has done and, and the many trials therein is it's revealed how vulnerable are so many things that we assumed were simply unshakable. We've seen the most technologically sophisticated societies wholly disrupted by the smallest of, of microbes. We've recalled, we've been forced to remember how fragile our bodies and our health are. We've seen how fragile our mental health can be as the whole world is just swept under a wave of loneliness. We've seen how precarious finances and financial resources can be as we've seen businesses across the country Closed down. And these trials, these sad realities, they're excruciating and they're worthy of lament and we should lament them. But, and, and I say this with trepidation, properly processed, God means to use these painful realities to lead us to himself. When we see how shakable all of these other sources of security are, we're meant to be led to him, who just is the one unshakable source of security. When we see how ultimately untrustworthy these things are as the very foundations of our life, 
we're meant to be led to God and realize just how trustworthy He is. And in the process, we are meant to acquire a taste for God. So we have to ask ourselves, is each step actually increasing our ability to enjoy God? Is this the course and the practice of our lives? Are we living in such a way that God just is the natural reward of our life? Or is he a kind of of tack-on, something that is, is extra? Has our Christian life become a mercenary affair? The the Christian tradition at its best has understood the Christian life as a a pilgrimage. But I think sometimes we can think of the Christian life as a kind of teleportation, where we're here and then suddenly we're there, and there's no continuity, there's no connection of everything in between. But it's a pilgrimage that's meant to lead us to God. And pilgrimage is very important for another reason, too. Because, again, at its best, when the Christian tradition has talked about a pilgrimage, it's not a journey away from the world, but rather it's a journey through the world. It's not a pilgrimage away from creation, but it's a pilgrimage to God through creation. And that brings us to our second point, the love of creation. Look with me at James 1, 13 through 17. James writes the following. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James is telling us that God tempts no one. That God is never, ever a source of sin. Rather, the sources of sin come from us. We are the sources of sin. And in particular, James speaks to our, quote, desire. And the word that James uses here for desire is actually a very important word, the word epithumia. And it's a rich concept, and and we might translate it more accurately, more specifically as inordinate desire, a kind of disordered desire. It's out of whack with the way that things actually are. So if, if James is pointing to our desires as the sources of our sin, Is he advocating a kind of detached stoicism? A kind of alienated aloofness? No, he's he's not. He's actually doing something very different. What James is doing here is treating our desires and our loves with the utmost seriousness and the utmost sanctity. James is telling us that our problem is not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. What James is telling us is that our sin is actually a truncation, a shrinkage of our desire. As as one theologian, Oliver O'Donovan, puts it, God is much more ambitious for us than we are for ourselves. And this is because God is our good creator. All that he has given us, all that he has made in creation is very good. 
no evil in it at all. So then, where then does sin and temptation and evil come from? James tells us, again, it is our epithumia, our inordinate desires, or as Augustine calls them, our disordered loves. When we love anything in creation, we do not love a bad thing. Strictly speaking, there is no bad thing in creation. If there were, then God himself would be the source of temptation. If God created a bad thing and we were tempted to love it, then God would be a tempter. God would be, in some way, shape, or form, a source of sin. But that's not the case. The problem is that we love the good things of creation with an inordinate desire. We love these good things of creation as our highest end. We love them, in a sense, as our God. And because we love them more than God, we use them wrongly. Because we have to remember that sin itself is always a perversion of a good thing. It's not self-standing. It, in a sense, is, is parasitic. It's, it's piggybacking on some created good. And perhaps the, the paradigmatic example here would be that of, of a lie. And I don't think that it's any mistake that often Satan is referred to in Scripture as the father of lies. But, but think about the lie, and think about what makes the lie effective, what makes the lie work. Lies work because of the goodness of true speech. If we didn't expect people to speak truly, if most of the exchanges we had weren't based upon true speech, then the lie itself would have no efficacy. If you didn't trust anything that anyone said, if you knew that everyone was lying all the time, then lies wouldn't work. Lies wouldn't have any efficacy. But the lie depends upon the goodness of true speech. The lie just is the corruption and the perversion of good speech. When we look at the lie, that doesn't mean that the good gift of words is, is bad. It just means that the very good gift of words can be misused. They can be used wrongly. They can be used in such a way that they're meant to satisfy our inordinate desires, our disordered loves. Remember that we called life a kind of, of pilgrimage and the way that we travel in life should naturally lead to our reward. And that means that each step along the way, each created good that we encounter and we're called to steward, should direct us in the path to God. The way we steward our words, the way we steward our relationships, our resources, our work, they should all lead us to God. But the problem is when something besides God becomes the destination of our life. The problem is when something besides God, some created good, is loved as God. Because again, remember, the destination of our life organizes each step we take along the path. If you're going this direction, you're going to travel this way. But if you're going to a location in a different direction, the path is going to look very different. And it's that destination that organizes each part of your path. So if we love some creational good, it could be career, romance, family, 
academics, any number of things. If that's what we are ultimately seeking, if that's the natural reward for the kind of life that we're living, then that's going to organize the way that we use each creational good along the way. And even God himself will just become a step, a brick on the path to something else. Think about the way that we use our words to return to the, to the lie. If career is what we seek the most, then we will be tempted to use words in such a way that, that they direct us always and only to career advancement. We'll be tempted to lie to protect our professional success. If romance is that greatest good that we're seeking, then we'll be tempted to use the good gift of words to lie in order to present uh, an unrealistic image of ourselves to some other person that we would like to be dating. If family, family harmony, a very good thing, becomes the greatest good in our lives, then we'll be tempted to use the good gift of words to lie and hide over relational faults that need to be addressed and that will, be, that will continue to fester. And of course, we see this in the church as well. The last few years, we've seen a number of terrible scandals affecting the church. And in some way, shape, or form, these scandals are always connected with lying. And when we do that, we take the good gift of words, and rather than putting them upon an altar to God, we put them on an altar to ourselves, worshiping ourselves and using words in any way necessary to worship ourselves, to put forward a certain vision of ourselves that we would like other people to believe at any cost whatsoever. But of course, there's a danger here. One of which is that these created goods, if they are our ultimate destination, they do not take us where they promise to lead. James tells us that they end in death. Look at me at verse 14. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What this means is that our desires of good things can actually turn those very good things into sources of death. And this is a terrifying thought. Look with me towards that end again at Psalm 1, verses 3 through 4. The psalmist writes the following, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And in chaff, there refers to a kind of wheat husk. They'd throw it up in the air to separate the husk from the rest of the wheat, and it would be blown away by the wind. What the psalmist is telling us here is that the person who delights in the law of the Lord is able to use the good gifts of creation and to grow from them. Specifically, the psalmist talks about water. The tree receives the water. But, of course, it also receives sunlight, soil, and air. These gifts of creation are used rightly, and the tree grows and matures and flourishes. 
However, not so with the wicked. The wicked are blown away. But it's interesting to point out what the wicked are blown away by. They're blown away by air. They're blown away by wind. The same wind that helps the tree to breathe and gives the tree life actually becomes a means of destruction for the wicked. God does not mean the good gift of wind to be a source of destruction, but it can be. God does not mean the good gifts of creation to be sources of destruction, but they can be. And the problem here is if we treat creation not as creation, but as the creator, then we will be scattered like chaff. If our God is vocation, if it's romance, if it's family harmony, if it's food and drink, if it's financial resources, these good things that God has lavished upon us will actually end up scattering us like chaff. However, if we make God our God, these good things like sunlight, soil, water, and air will help us to grow in all that God intends us to be, will help us to flourish like the tree of Psalm 1. So we have to ask ourselves, when we think of these good things in our life, are they like air that help us to breathe, or have they become wind that scatters us? And they will become like the scattering wind if we love them more than God. Because that's not what they're meant to do. Water is a good thing, but there's such a thing as water poisoning. Water is a good thing, but there's such a thing as a flood. And the difficulty is that in our fallen state, we have become fixated on good things without any thought to the great and good giver that gives them to us. And this brings us to our third and final point, the love of Christ. James writes in 1.18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And it's important to note that bring forth here is the same word that James earlier uses for sin bringing forth death. In contrast to death, these are the first fruits that God himself brings forth. James is telling us that because of the word of truth, we can actually begin bearing fruit as we were meant to do. That like the tree in Psalm 1, we're able to use the good gifts of creation rightly, that they become to us sources of maturation rather than destruction. But how is this so? And what is this word of truth? And commentators agree that when James here speaks of the word of truth, he's speaking of of the gospel, of the public proclamation of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask, what does that have to do with this matter of of loves? And quite a bit, actually. Remember that that C.S. Lewis called the Christian life an acquired taste, that we have to develop an acquired taste for God. But why should this be so? Why should God initially confront our affections in the same way that a bitter cup of coffee confronts the affections of a child? It's a strange thought, if you think about it. But James directs us to the word of truth. 
And the word of truth tells us that God is not just our creator, but that he's also our redeemer. And to love God as redeemer just is a required, or sorry, an acquired taste. Augustine helps us put this in perspective. He, he says the following. Suppose, brethren, a man should make a ring for his betrothed, and she should love the ring more wholeheartedly than the betrothed who made it for her. Certainly let her love his gift, but if she should say, the ring is enough, I do not want to see his face again, what would we say of her? The pledge is given her by the betrothed, just that, in his pledge, he himself may be loved. God, then, has given you all things. Love him who made them. What Augustine is telling us here is that we cannot separate God, the creator, from his good gifts of creation. If we do so, we are like the fiancé who rests content with the ring, with no thought at all to what the ring actually signifies, to the unwavering love and commitment of the beloved. Augustine is telling us that in a sense, all of creation is God's pledge of love to us. But let's move from the pledge to God himself, rather than just to stay there at the level of the pledge. Because what the pledge tells us is that God loves us with the unwavering love of a bridegroom. As James himself tells us in this passage, there is no variation or shadow due to change in God. God's purposes for us do not change. He means us to flourish as we live rightly before him with others in creation. However, to love God then, that also means that we have to acknowledge that we have been adulterous to our betrothed, that we have loved the good gifts of creation more than the good creator. To love God as Redeemer means that at first we have to acknowledge our sin. To love God as Redeemer means that we have to acknowledge our guilt for our wayward loves and the destructions they have called. To love God as Redeemer means to acknowledge our sin. To love God as Redeemer means to look squarely at the cross of Jesus Christ to look and to acknowledge that this is what I am due. Because we've turned from the Creator, we've turned from God, we've turned from the very source of life, and to turn from the source of life just is to turn to death. So, of course, death is what we are due. And to acknowledge this is more bitter than any coffee. Yet, to look at the cross is not only to acknowledge, to realize what we are due. It's also to acknowledge what God has done. For when we look at the cross, we see both our guilt, but also God's love. We see how far he is willing to go to bring us back to himself. We see that Christ has given us his very life. So then when when James calls us to love God, and he does so by the word of truth, he doesn't mean some abstract, nice thought, some kind of vacuous idea of the divine. 
He means us to look at the cross, where the Creator Himself became a creature and underwent the de-creation of death. And He did that for you. He really, really did. He did that for you. And because of that, we can be those who love God. We can be like those in Psalm 1 who delight in the law of the Lord. What does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? If we think about the law of the Lord without Christ, we see the life that we are called to, the life that God expects of us, and we see all the ways that we have fallen short, and the law becomes a terror. The law becomes a remembrance of our punishment. But when we look at the cross, we see that Christ has taken that punishment for us. There's no fear. There's no burden. And when we look at the law, we remember what he has done for us. And with that, the life of flourishing that he has called us to and enabled us to fulfill. So how can we love God? Well, first, by looking at the cross. For to understand the cross is to see how far the love of God will go. A love that we cannot help but respond to with our own love. Because in the cross, we find the death that we are due. And again, this is a draft more bitter than any coffee. But we also find out how deeply we're loved by God. And this is a sweetness more satisfying than any fruit of the vine. So let us look at Christ. Let us look at the cross that we may acquire a taste for God. And so that all that we do will whet our appetite for Him. And may we lead such a life in response to Christ that He's not only our Savior, but our very great and our holy natural reward for the life that we've lived before Him. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the word of truth, wherein you yourself have come at the greatest cost to yourself, at the greatest of lengths, to bring us back to yourself. Help us to look at the cross. Help us to meditate on the cross and help it to inspire for us a taste for you, that we would love you, that we would rest in you. And from that, Lord, help us to use, help us to steward all the good gifts that you have given us as means to worship you and to love you more. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of your spirit. Amen.